Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney, and with Helen Scales. And now it's time to take a look at the science news for us this week. So what's your story, Helen? Right, I've got a story about the Grand Canyon. Have you been to the Grand Canyon, Kat? No. It's very big. It's amazing. I've been a couple of times. It's sort of, you get there and it, it's bigger than ever. You can actually, you know, you see a picture of it, but it's bigger than that still. It's amazing. I get the feeling the Lake District probably doesn't really measure well, up. <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, anyway, it's fantastic. If you ever get a chance, do go, especially with this news that it could be much older than we previously thought. So this is America's Grand Canyon, and uh, it could be so old, in fact, that dinosaurs maybe strolled down it. It's a spectacular place. It's 277 miles long. It's up to 18 miles across its widest point, and it's a mile deep. And in Tenelau, it's been generally accepted that it was formed by a river cutting through and eroding rocks about five or six million years ago. But now remains of phosphate crystals in the canyon push back that estimated formation date to maybe 70 million years ago, so ten times older than we previously thought. And that's according to a new study published this week in the journal Science by Rebecca Flowers from the University of Colorado at Boulder and Kenneth A. Farley from Caltech. Well, tracking back ancient erosion events is really challenging because scientists are aren't studying when sedimentary rocks were laid down, but when they were taken away. And the rocks of the Grand Canyon were laid down between 200 million and 2 billion years ago. Much of that was when this part of the western United States was part of a shallow tropical sea. And a river then cut through, exposing those rocks, revealing one of the most complete and mind-boggling sequences of rocks on Earth. So how did these researchers actually figure out that it was cut through at a much older age? What they did was they basically took an approach um, involving apatite crystals, these phosphate crystals, taken from the western end of the canyon. And what's going on is uranium and thorium molecules inside those crystals break down radioactively to form helium. And that helium gets locked up inside those crystals as they cool at lower temperatures. And as rocks erode and they get closer to the surface of the earth, they cool down. And so these traces of helium essentially leave a kind of record of that cooling history. So it can indicate when the canyon was cut through the rocks. And uh, using this technique, they've actually looked at the eastern end previously of the canyon and they put an erosion date for that bit at 55 million years. And Rebecca Flowers thinks that the canyon was first formed by a predecessor of the Colorado River, which is the one that's there now, but it ran in the opposite direction. Now, this all sounds quite controversial. I mean, you can't just go mucking around with the age of enormous <laughs> geolo geological structures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, especially if, if you have a look around on online, you'll see there's quite a lot of um, other scientists saying, hang on a minute, you know, we don't quite agree with the interpretation of this data and so on. So there's a, there is still some controversy on this. Um, but actually, there's nothing new. People have been disagreeing about the Grand Canyon for at least 150 years. And I, I don't think it's going to stop now. I mean, there's no doubt that it's got a very complicated history and it, it might not have all formed at one time. This isn't just about figuring out the Grand Canyon itself, but it really helps us understand more about um, how other landscapes are formed, you know, and really helps scientists get to grips with topography and hydrology and tectonics. And it also shows that even with new techni techniques emerging, that there are still enormous 
enormous puzzles about the world that still have yet to be fully unravelled. And with this new idea um, of just perhaps how old the Grand Canyon was, um, they want to now go out and figure out, well, just how it took shape as well. So, yeah, big puzzles. Fantastic. I love it when we don't quite know what's going on. It's just really exciting. The really big puzzles, massive geological puzzles. And now down to a tiny, tiny molecular puzzle. And that's the puzzle of drug resistance. And this is a major problem when it comes to treating cancer. And in many cases, cancer drugs, chemotherapy, they work in the short term. But tumours then become resistant to treatment and carry on growing. And this isn't only true for older chemotherapy drugs, but for some of the newer targeted therapies we now have too. And it happens because cancer cells are cunning and they evolve to overcome the effects of the medication. And there's a lot of research going on around the world at the moment aimed at understanding and overcoming this resistance. And now a team of European and US researchers led by René Bernards at the Netherlands Cancer Institute have identified an entirely new mechanism by which cancer cells can develop drug resistance. And they've just published their findings in the journal Cell. Okay, so what is this new mechanism and uh, how did they find it? Well, they started by looking at lung cancer cells that carry a specific genetic fault. This is a fusion between two genes called EML4 and ALK. It drives them to grow out of control. And then they used a technique called RNA interference. They tested 24,000 tiny, tiny fragments of RNA in these cells and they switch off about 8,000 different genes one at a time. And this was in cancer cells that had been treated with different drugs. And they were looking for cells that became resistant to the drug treatment when one of these genes was switched off and then worked out which gene must have been switched off for that to happen. And they found one. This was a gene called MED12. And it was actually quite unexpected. OK, come on. Why was it unexpected? Well, it's part of something called the mediator complex, which sounds like a bit sci-fi, but it's just a, a group of proteins inside cells that help cells to switch genes on and off. And the researchers discovered that switching off MED12 leads to the switching on of a pathway called TGF-beta signalling. This is kind of a, a molecular escape route that keeps cancer cells growing out of control, even when they've been treated with drugs. Now, the really exciting thing is that there are drugs out there in testing that that uh, block this TGF-beta signalling. So maybe combining them with chemotherapy or targeted treatments could actually tackle drug resistance to make the therapy more effective. Well, that sounds really exciting. How soon might we see this actually you know, being rolled out in to t- help treat cancer patients, do you think? Well, there's a lot more to figure out what's what's going on here. This has just been done in cells growing in the lab. It doesn't take into account all the complicated interactions between cancer cells and the tissue around them, which we know are important. But it's certainly significant, it's exciting, and it does take a step closer to understanding how cancers become resistant to, to therapy and maybe how to overcome it. Now, also in the news this week, a little slimy fish has inspired researchers to find an alternative to petrol-based synthetic fibres. And as the price of petroleum products ever increases and we run out of oil on this planet, synthetic materials such as nylon and Kevlar become more expensive to produce and less sustainable. Now, one solution would be to make fibres from proteins. These are the biological molecules, and some labs have succeeded in manufacturing threads from man-made spider silk. But Dr Douglas Fudge and his colleagues at the University of Guelph have taken their inspiration from a surprising source, tiny, slimy hagfish. And we're joined by Dr Fudge now. Tell me, hagfish, what have they got that that makes them, uh, that can make this fibre? What are they doing? Their entire bodies are covered in specialized glands called slime glands. And when a hagfish is bothered by something or attacked by a predator, it can shoot this thick exudate out of these glands and 
make a slime that really is quite unique in the animal kingdom. So they, this is they're, they're little fish. Where where do they live? These fish? They they're actually not that little. Um, you know, they can be a foot long up to eight feet long in some species, and they live in all the oceans of the world. Most people have never seen a hagfish because they tend to live in quite deep parts of the ocean. But there are there's 82 species of hagfish around the world that we know of. And so they're they're making this this slime all over their bodies. How do you actually turn that into to threads? How how have you understood what's in this slime that might make a good fiber? The thing about hagfish slime that that really makes it different from all other slimes that we've looked at is that it's reinforced with these silk-like protein fibers. Most marine animals actually make some sort of mucus that covers their body, but but hagfish have sort of taken this to a new level. They actually shoot the slime out of these glands. And there are these fibers that that help the slime sort of hang together, and it it gives the slime very unique mechanical properties. This sounds a bit like Spider-Man, you know, kind of shooting out this this web stuff. How did you find out that their slime had these unusual properties? This is something I worked on for my PhD research uh, at the University of British Columbia with a guy named John Gosline. And uh, John was mostly working on spider silk, actually, um, I was sort of the, the weird guy in the lab working on hagfish slime. But we, we very quickly figured out that the threads that we could isolate from the slime have these sort of silk-like properties. And it's not really going to be practical, is it, to have a, a factory full of hagfish churning out threads to make clothes? So, so presumably you're trying to recreate these kind of proteins in the lab. Yeah, so, th- I mean, this paper that just got published is, is our first paper where we actually tried to make something out of the proteins from hagfish slime. How did it go? Um, It went okay. Uh, The real take-home lesson was that we're not nearly as good as the hagfish at making, you know, high-performance fibers. And, And this is something that the people who work with spider silk learned a long time ago, that, you know, the first time they tried to make silk like fibers, even if they're using proteins directly from a spider, it's very difficult to do it as well as the organism does it. So you you don't think we're going to see a hagfish shirt hitting our shops anytime soon? Not in the next couple of years. And and if it is, it's probably not going to be harvested from a hagfish. It will probably be proteins expressed in some other organism like bacteria that can make the proteins more cheaply and with less mess. But just when and when you spin them out into a fiber, it's not going to be slimy. So this wouldn't be like a slimy shirt. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. It would be more silky. Uh, that's a nice, a nice thought to end with. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Douglas Fudge from Guelph University in Canada, and his work was published this week in the journal Biomacromolecules. Well, it's been a good week for life in outer space. Not only has NASA released results of its messenger probe that suggests that Mercury may have billions of tonnes of water ice at its poles, but also a paper published in the journal PNAS confirms the discovery of a bacterial ecosystem in a frozen Antarctic lake. The discovery in Lake Vida shows us new ways for life to survive in very challenging conditions, such as might be found in icy bodies outside the Earth. To find out more about Lake Vida and its inhabitants, Ben Bowsler spoke to Alison Murray, Associate Professor at the Desert Research Institute in Reno.
this lake is, lies in what's called the Victoria Valley in a pretty area of Antarctica that's called the McMurdo Dry Valleys. The unusual thing about the lake that we're working in, Lake Vida, is that it's frozen all the way to the bottom. And below 15 meters, for sure, there is no light that reaches down there. And the temperature is a really constant around minus 13.4 degrees Celsius. It doesn't sound like somewhere where you'd want to be looking for evidence of life. That's right. We were not sure what we would find. At the bottom of the ice core that was retrieved in 1996, the the ice got saltier with depth. So we had an indication that there was a saline system in in this lake, but we really didn't know what to expect when we went back there in 2005 for the first time and drilled further down into into the ice. When we're talking about a a lake, my vision is of a, a big body of water and if it's a frozen lake then I expect a layer of ice and then a layer of water underneath but it sounds like the conditions you've got here are more like sort of rivers of very salty water running through the ice. Yeah that's right so what what we imagined when we started this was that there was a subsurface pocket of salty water and what we found, though, is quite different from that. So when we looked at the ice cores and pieced together this story, what we have found is, I would describe this as kind of a spiderweb network of brine channels that are reaching and connecting through the ice. We recovered some of this brine, and one of the first things we did was put it in the microscope. And what we found was a very abundant community of bacteria we're using a, a field epifluorescent microscope at the time, so we didn't couldn't have a really close look at the organisms, but we were astonished at, at how abundant they were. It seems significant to me that what you haven't found is one extremely hardy type of bacteria that is just clinging on to life. What you've actually found is, is an ecosystem, a thriving ecosystem with all of the variety that you'd expect to find on the surface, despite the harsh conditions there is an ecosystem there. I think that that is a really good point, and we were surprised at that when we started looking at the diversity of bacteria that were there. The only life form that we have found so far are bacteria, several different kinds spanning many different bacterial phyla. They have different physiological, biogeochemical capabilities, and so they do appear to be an ecosystem. And I don't know that they are thriving down there as much as they are surviving <laughs> down there. Uh, we're sort of on the, the limits of what, where we understand how uh, metabolism can really function at this temperatures of, of, of minus 13.4. Presumably at minus 13, it's not a very energetic environment, but they're obviously metabolizing something. So where's the food coming from? The food is most likely coming from the resources that were sort of frozen into that lake when it was frozen. The concentrations of organic carbon that we we measured in the brine are exceedingly high. So there is a food source in the lake. Um, There's also a lot of inorganic sources of energy which could be used by by the bacteria. So much to our surprise, really, that this system is really energy-rich. One thing that we did find is that there appears to be a a reaction, an abiotic reaction between the brine there and the sediments. We measured really high levels of of hydrogen, which is a readily utilizable energy source. So we think that between the carbon supply as well as 
hydrogen and potentially other inorganic energy sources, that there's actually a lot of energy there and that what is really holding everything back is probably the temperature in the system. And what do you think this tells us about life in other places where the conditions are harsh? We know that there's also a team of researchers from the British Antarctic Survey who are on their way to Lake Ellsworth, again, to look and see what might be under the ice. But do we think that this new discovery tells us a bit more about the sorts of things we could be looking for? Yeah, I do. I I think that it really has expanded our our vision about kind of yet one more habitat where we find life on Earth. And the last 25 years have been kind of like unpeeling the onion of, of, wow, life can appear here and it can be there. And I think that the Lake Ellsworth project uh, in particular stands probably a good chance to finding life in their system. And of course, we're always very excited to think about finding life outside of our planet. Now, do you think this gives us any more idea as to how to look for life or what sorts of chemistry might be going on in icy worlds, perhaps moons of Saturn or Jupiter? Yeah, I I think that the reaction that we have found that's going on here, the chemical reaction between the brine and this iron-dominated rock that we think is producing the hydrogen gas, most times that reaction is thought to occur in warmer temperatures. So the findings here from like Vida kind of give us a, a place to point to, to look for environments that could be kind of similar elsewhere. Alison Murray from Desert Research Institute. As always, you can find out more about all our news stories at our website, thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.